business success usually comes to those who are too busy to be looking for it. Join RVK for the award-winning RV on Business Show every Tuesday at 12 midday. It's not about thinking out of the box. There is no box. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. This is the Avion Money Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Often in an economy, we look at the broader picture and what we're looking for is how the economy itself is doing. And we take figures that are given to us that are published on an ongoing basis. But sometimes one can look at specific sectors and more than that, you can look at specific industries and they can be a barometer for you as to how an economy is doing not only locally but internationally and one of those one of those sectors is steel i remember many many years ago the depression or the recession we had many years ago sitting with somebody um, who worked for one of the biggest steel manufacturers and he said to me lightheartedly do you know anybody who can sink three ships for me and i said like why on earth would you want to do that he said because i've got three ships sitting in cape town harbor cost us a million rand a day per ship and we don't have a single export order. And that just showed the tremendous pressure they were under, that the economy wasn't moving, nothing was going through the Suez Canal, and there was just a lot of pressure. But today to discuss that with us a little bit further and to expand on the steel and engineering industries is Tafatswa Chibanguza, who is the Chief Operating Officer of SAFSA, which is the Steel and Engineering Industry Federation of South Africa. Tafatswa, welcome to Chai FM. Avi, thank you very much for having us. Uh, great pleasure to be here. Great. I was happy to see you nodding away at my introduction. You obviously agree with uh, with what I'm saying. But before we get into that... This is RV on Business. Welcome back to 101.9 Chai FM. And now we have technology working at 17 minutes past 12. And on the line with us is Tafatswa Chibagunza. And apologies for the mispronunciation there who is the Chief Chief Operating Officer of the South African Steel and Engineering Industries Federation of South Africa. So, Tafatswa, let's jump straight back into it. Who are you guys and what do you do? Thank you, Avi. A pleasure to be here. Um, Sorry for the earlier inconvenience with technology. So, SIFSA is a federation that was founded in 1943. So, this is our 80th year of existence. What we, in essence, are is a... Uh, business, organized business organization representing companies in the steel and engineering value chain. So by representing these members, it's basically to lobby and advocate for them for a conducive business environment. We do that in the bargaining space where we engage with the unions on their behalf in terms of industry employment um, uh, conditions, as well as a very important role that we play as an organization is really dealing with the business side of the sector, that being uh, working tirelessly to create that conducive business economic environment that touches everything from policy right down to trade conditions. So that's who we are and what we represent. Maybe I'll just end on, on this point is that we represent 20, the steel and engineering sector constitute 26% of the manufacturing sector. 
and uh, 2.5% of GDP. So we represent everything from the steel mills, the foundries, the fabrication value chain, all the way up to heavy engineering. So that's what do you represent also the smaller um, operators? There's a lot of engineering shops in South Africa that do phenomenal work. I remember I went, I've got a client who makes um, pods for helicopters for the Nigerian army. And it's a little factory and that's all they do. Would they be represented by you? Absolutely. In fact, in our membership, we count in excess of 1,250 member companies. Um, and maybe just there as a technical point, I will just make that we are a federation. So we represent 18 associations. So the companies who are members are members of the associations and those 18 associations are federated to the organization. But to your question more directly, 60% of our companies, which make up those 1,250 companies, employ less than 50 people basically giving us our definition of uh, small to medium large, but companies doing phenomenal work across the engineering value chain. Fantastic. There's, there's just so much I really want to discuss with you about that before we actually get to the press release. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing that p- pops up is that you said the Federation started in 1943. 1943, Correct. 2023, 80 years later, the landscape is a different place altogether. 1943, we were in the middle of the World War II. We were part of the of Great Britain. You know, black economic empowerment wasn't even a pipe dream. Um, you know, we were so far from where we are today. We still had to go through the whole pain of the apartheid era. How has the organization changed and adapted and become and remained relevant over 80 years? It's incredible that it was still there. Yeah. It's it's an interesting history that you paid, but very true. I mean, this this organization and this sector has seen a a has seen a considerable amount of uh, change over the very many interesting uh, milestones that the country's experienced. Uh, but we've remained relevant, um, um, Avi, in the sense that this th- there is a need for the voice of organized business. That's very important. And CIFSA and many other organized business organizations continue to play that important role. But what has been, un- uh, what has been unfortunate is that as the natural composition of economies evolve from hard industries into more services related, we've seen the share of contribution of manufacturing and the sector contract relative to the GDP, but that's really a function of the evolution of economies. And uh, yeah, I'll be happy to expand more on that um, as we carry on. Fantastic. As, as you saw, we need to take a break. We need to fund the show one way or another. Let's take a quick ad break. We'll be back with you in a moment. This is RV on Business. Welcome back to 101.9 FM. And just before I go back to our guest, so far, so we're coming back to you. So we're saying that as an industry, even though we, um, as a steel and engineering, even though we are 2% of GDP, that has contracted over time. But heavy engineering has contracted in a lot of companies and simply made space and to share space with things like IT and AI, AI that never existed sort of before. So we understand that. But something that comes to mind is if we look at what's happening in Europe now with Ukraine, all of a sudden the arms manufacturing has become a crisis. We haven't had this, I don't even think in the Cold War, since Second World War, where we had to turn, I don't know, basic factories into armaments factories in order to produce enough 
to go to the front. In South Africa, part of that, we were through Danel and through ISCOR, we were such a major player in that area. Are we benefit benefiting from that at all? Avi, um, it, it is a wide value chain and I, 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 I don't want to, I would want to steer clear from speaking specifically to products, say, for example, the arms industry uh, specifically. But what I want to make as a point, I think a more broader principle point was a point that was made by National Treasury. There's a policy paper that they published, I think about 2020, around about the time when former minister Tito Mboweni was minister at the time, and there was a policy paper put out there. And what they stressed in there about the need for focusing or economies focusing on the heavy engineering industries is the ability of those industries to reinvent themselves across many business cycles, across many economic conditions, and in this case, across many products um, that we see. Um, maybe like, so to your point about th- that capacity does still exist, although as you would know, with less spend on an industry like the armaments, there's been a lot of, uh, deterioration in that capacity, of course. Um, but of course, but the broader principle is that the, f- the function of heavy engineering type product is its ability to reinvent itself across many other areas as well, which I think is a broader principle to leave with you there. That is really the fundamental point because that's yeah. how your organization as a federation has survived all these years. Because if they hadn't been able to morph and change, um, no one needs steam locomotives anymore. Um, and that might have been a major component of that industry many, many years ago. Today, it's a totally different item. One thing that is facing all South Africans is at the yeah. end of the day, foundries are one of the biggest users and consumers of electricity. How have you guys helped and been involved in the challenge that not only is every South African going through, but major industries going through? It's one thing for us not to have a warm supper or a warm shower or a microwave that's working. It's another thing when a foundry goes off in the middle of a pole. How does that work? Yeah. So I'll start with the stressing the obvious, but I think it's more intense on us um, that at the heart of industrialization, or in this case, heavy manufacturing, heavy engineering, is energy, electricity. And without that electricity, the inverse also is naturally occurs, that we see a deterioration. So much so that in this forecast that we've put for the year ahead, we list this energy crisis as the most severe headwind facing the industry right now. So our forecast is quite load shedding intensive in terms of what we see as the 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 developments on the grid and the implications for our sector. That's one. Two, what have we been doing as an organization? By virtue, as I mentioned, of us being an advocacy group, we are plugged into all the energy or discussions about energy that are happening. So we're involved with the National Energy Crisis Committee from feeding information into there. We're involved with um, all the consultation processes, be it with the energy regulator as well as BUSA. And more importantly, also we are involved directly with suggesting solutions that would unlock the energy space. And also, lastly, I want to just stress a point that there's been from the broader organized business community, including ourselves as well, the offer to say capacity exists within the private sector to assist with this um, energy crisis. And really what we want is a, a role in that um, in that um, 
in that solution because the capacity exists within the private sector. And I suppose for you guys, it's a positively double-edged sword because the everything in that private capacity is made by your members, whether it's turbines, whether it is solar panels, whether it is trucks to transport, all that stuff is made, is fabricated one way or another. And it's something that you guys would benefit from both ends to, number one, keep your factories full and pumping, and number two, to make sure that there's a constant supply. So it's really in your interest to to make sure that goes forward. Very true. I mean, to that list of product, I would add power transformers, the transmission cranes, the transmission lines. The the list is endless in terms of just our ability to plug into that energy solution. But Avi, one thing I do want to stress, and we made this point in a note and even in our report, that the the um, the motive the motivation for business to participate in this particular um, in solving this issue is actually not one of profiteering but really just one of survival because right now we are at a point where we have a the, the grid has deteriorated so much so that it presents immediate and long-term risks to the country and as well as to the sector. So it's really a sustainability and survival um, um, motivation to participate uh, and not just a profiteering one. Fantastic. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot that I, I think I'm actually going to chat with you about um, off-air, you know, just from the experience that I've had that South Africa just seems to be lagging in so many of the energy production that's happening around the world, even in, in, our, in our fellow countries in Africa, you know, there's no power crisis there. And the reason is that they've allowed this decentralization to happen and just to make sure that the grid runs. But so that's why let's go to, to another side of the industry, if you don't mind. And this is something I see is coming through on, on the questions. So that's all about labor. You know, yeah. if we go back to 1943, your labor force was dispensable. And yeah. it was literally bodies in a factory how you treated them was absolutely irrelevant. And if someone got injured, you just replaced them. Yeah. And thank God we are no longer in the scenario now. Not only is an employee a, a part of the, the value chain, but they're a fundamental part of the company. And an unhappy employee, we all know, impacts on productivity across the chain. What has been done in this industry specifically, where a lot of it is blue collar, to ensure that there's just a a happiness about going to work. And I would say that that is based on the ability to progress, that someone doesn't have to sweep a floor for the rest of their lives. How has your federation been involved in that type of progress? Yeah. So we've been involved in that progress, one. And, and, and um, uh, maybe one starts here by saying that you're very right. If one looks at the deplorable treatment historically of labor, you know, as a dispensable resource, I think you perfectly articulated it that way. And there's been this mindset shift to seeing them as a partner. Um, and that's really an important thing because in a partnership, then there's mutual benefit, right? But then equally with that and, and our involvement with that, we're very involved in our, our bargaining council, which is really the platform that brings ourselves, labor and the companies that we represent 
to a table to discuss mutual benefit, right? So that's that's in our involvement historically and even up to this point. Um, you'll see even with our industry master plan, which also pulls divided opinions about a, a, these master plan approaches that the, that, that our ministry has adopted. But even in there, there's responsibilities and, um, there is partnership between the state labor and the private sector to, to reignite the sector's growth through that, um, through that through that master plan. So it creates a platform to have the discussion. Again, CIFSA is very much involved in there. But maybe the, 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 the often contentious point I do want to make is that while in a partnership, what's very important to stress is that it's, it needs a give or take. It needs a mutual flow of, 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 um, well, let's, let me put it this way, reciprocal, uh, um, commitments as well as being a reciprocal, um, um, contributions to the table. And unfortunately, what we have seen is that in, in many instances, as labor costs have increased quite substantially, um, for reasons that we can always, um, again, expand on. But really the point is that productivity hasn't increased to the same point. Now, there's sometimes many accusations around that's issues to do with multi-factor productivity, which also involves the role of the management, if you like, in organizing the entire resources and optimizing their resources. So there's criticism that side. But also there's a very big part on the labor who in this partnership with give or take reciprocal commitments, I do think there is an important Benefit, there is an important role that organized labor needs to contribute in also working on aspects of productivity because that's in the long-term sustainability of uh, the, the sector. That, that, that's really a, a massive discussion. It's almost we can have a, a whole sit-down discussion just around labor on its own. Yeah. But something that's coming through really strongly here is um, people are saying that it is very difficult to find qualified staff these days. Yeah. Um, a guy says here, when I did my apprenticeship, it was a couple of years. I was very proud to get into one of the big companies. I really worked hard and I worked through all the different segments of the of that business. So when I opened up my own business, I was really proficient and understood every part of the engineering process. Today, youngsters are coming to me with pieces of paper that are worthless and experience that is dangerous. How can you get involved to arrest this challenge. Yeah. Look, Avi, our, um, and thanks for the question for that came through. I mean, our involvement in there, um, and, uh, maybe this is a punt for CIFSA. It's a drop in the ocean in terms of contributing to the skill development, um, uh, arena. And that's a big problem. I just want to stress that point that the, um, um, the question came through with that, um, the skill development area. In fact, we finished a massive research project, um, for this, uh, um, uh, still master plan, uh, uh, program and really the skills deficit has come up as a massive um, as a massive shortfall, particularly in an industry such as ours, which is technical, heavy engineering, and we know those skills are lacking. So that's 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 an that's a problem facing us, a glaring problem facing us today and going to the future. CIFSA actually has a training center which we've operated for the last 40 years. Um, and uh, that's also a technical training center. Uh, training skills in the di- different 11 um, artisanal trades. And that's really 
our small contribution to that area? Does it resolve the 20,000 artisans needed by the state or that glamorous target? Definitely not. Our capacity is in the order of about 450 students per annum. But really, that's our contribution in that in that area. But I do want to stress the obvious in saying that the point that was made there, that that skills deficit does present a long-term structural a constraint as well as risk to the sector, just given the nature of skills that are needed within the sector. Somebody puts through quite a, a lot of emojis and a lot of humor, uh, but Thomas says here, the swear word in our little engineering shop is plastic. Stuff that we were making years ago is now replaced by plastic. We've tried to find new markets. We've tried to find new product to make, but ultimately we cannot compete with plastic injection molding, plastic developed stuff that comes out so much cheaper than we can ever dream of making it. How yeah. does one adapt in this challenge? Mm. Look, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very difficult question. And I think its solutions are, are, are more, um, engineering, you know, than just a uh, policy or, or, or one that we could solve over this discussion. But I mean, we do see it even when you look at, uh, in the, in, in the, in the piping side, we see also concrete being a massive threat to, 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 um, to pipe on the piping side, as well as uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, as the gentleman as old lady who has made that point, apologies, um, also is, is stressing the point that these risks come from all angles. On the trade side, we have similar ones. Uh, if you look at the dominance of, you like China in many of these products. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Uh, not having much of an answer, of course. I think the, the solutions are more engineering and, and more long-term, but those risks are always prevalent and coming up from all angles. We need to go to the shops briefly. Um, but yeah. before we go, one thing that I would like to discuss with you um, now, and you mentioned it earlier, is negotiation with unions. Yeah. Um, you know, one always, well, in the earlier years, and I'm talking about the 80s, the 90s, even the 2000s, one viewed unions as big business, predominantly white, against unions, predominantly black. And the first breakthrough really came in the police union where all of a sudden you had white policemen saying, hold on, let's put color aside. We are policemen like anybody else. And we have the, 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 the skill to articulate ourselves because we've had the experience and we are now leading this union. And we saw a lot of, you know, progress happening there. When we look at negotiations with unions today, is the starting point a point of animosity or is the starting point a point of how do we really do what is best for the employee? So it's an interesting question. I think also it's, um, it's, it's, it's motivations in, even in this response are, are, are philosophical in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a major way. But, you know, what we often stress at the table is that there's no point in, and, and maybe at this point it's worth stre- stressing a stat that we, that we did stress quite strongly when we made, when we released our report is that this sector has contracted on a production basis for the last 15 years has contracted on a compound annual contraction rate, if you like, of 1.2% per annum for 15 years. Now at the table, what we need to realize that a take, take approach to the negotiations um, will only result in accelerating that decline. 
I must also make the point that in the classic economics equation, GDP is calculated as compensation of employees. You apply, you account for some depreciation as well as surpluses, a profit, a proxy for profit, right? That's what you call GDP. 80% of that is of that value. So what you call value added by an industry from this industry, 80%, 82% of that goes to labor. So the point really, if you like, is that that share of the cake is disproportionately um, disproportionately uh, to the benefit of labor. And really then, if equal rights come with equal responsibility, an acrimonious approach to wage negotiations that dictates a take-take really then threatens the long-term sustainability of the sector, as well as it's almost to cut your nose, to spite your face in the terms of, in the sense of uh, uh, labor uh, coming with those sort of acrimonious approaches to it. Yeah. Right, so we need to take a quick break. Let's run to the shops quickly, and we'll be back with you in a moment. This is RV on Business. So that's what, just coming back to what we were saying before about, uh, you know, looking at it as a, as a, a, a take-all negotiation stance. There is a good point, and, and uh, it pains me to say that it came from a certain politician who I've got no respect for. But he spoke about jobs that are sustainable and good jobs. You want a salary that you can go home with. So really to talk about wage negotiations where we're sort of paying what we can afford to pay, but there's no ability to increase that, there's no ability to increase one's skill and therefore earn more, is also self-defeating. Um, is that part of negotiation about the annual increases, about inflation, about the cost of living, cost of living in the real time, what schooling is costing, what transport is costing? Mm-hmm. Very much so, um, Avi. And I would, I would even go as far as saying our traditional approach as CIFSA is to overlay over everything you've said, affordability, um, as well as um, uh, inflation, and uh, because those often, you know, you have discussions about assumptions, you know, where the, where the idea is that at the lower end, inflation is higher than the, at the higher end, you know, so you can always play around with those points. But really, what is necessary at any given time is to overlay the state of the economy, the state of the sector, right? Because that then dictates everything else that, um, that, that compromise. What is possible? What is not possible? What will ensure the long-term viability of, um, a sector? What will guarantee that the same people who are on the opposite side of the table making demands that are astronomical? What will make them remain having a job tomorrow? and be able to fend for their families. You know, that's the kind of approach that we often want to bring to the table. Um, there's discussions, again, bordering on philosophical points around what's a fair wage, um, is it fair? But in this climate right now with the levels of unemployment, um, one would one would lean to say having a job is almost something of a uh, magisterial privilege, if you like. Um, and really, that's something that, that, that's really what we always have to consider the, the, the long-term viability and sustainability of any given sector before, then the rest is really just assumptions that you're tweaking in, you know, around what is inflation and what, what is the, what is all the other detail. Yeah. If I was a fly on the wall, um, and sitting in these wage negotiations, you know, we often hear the outcome that there's been no agreement. And, um, you know, these then the threats start on this. Do they agree? Do, does it get heated in the boardroom? And do, 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 do voices raise? Do tempers flare? 
And then do people have to break and go get a cup of coffee and come back a little bit later? Is it as robust as that in the negotiation itself? Oh, very much so, um, Abi. It is, um, it is very, very, it does get very tense. That's one. Uh, two, um, I mean, we've had instances you, you can imagine if you are running a business and you have a, um, your orders are be, uh, you're, 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 you're waiting for your, your clients are waiting for orders to be delivered. And what's holding you back is a few percentages. And what is holding you back is a few percentage points. I mean, it does get heated, you know, and, um, and, and definitely it's a very tense process. And in fact, I should have made also the disclaimer that, um, in sort of areas of competence, um, one of the, what we've got a very, um, uh, deeply a seasoned, uh, wage negotiator here in the form of our CEO, um, Lucio Trentini, who I think a conversation with him about this area, because this has been his baby for the better part of 33 years. And I think he would have some, <laughs> he would have some. And also he makes the joke that what's left is white and the rest of it is also <laughs> fallen off. <laughs> but I do think a very, a, a detailed conversation with him because for him, this has been his bread and butter for 30 years. Um, but it does very much get heated, uh, just given what's at stake. Um, if you've invested a considerable amount into a business and uh, it's all being threatened by um, this one area. Uh, considering that there's still ESCOM you have to deal with, getting your orders through Transnet, the exports, uh, local government failures, and then just adding this one aspect just complicates um, the pro- everything even that much more. We, we're running out of time, and I think the two of you of us could have a cup of coffee that had no bottom and go on forever. Um, but if I had to say to you, please paint the picture for us for the next couple of years, what do you plan? What do you foresee? How do you think the industry is going to hold up? Yeah. I will answer it in saying that without intervention, and I'll touch on both sides, without intervention, we are in free fall. And this applies to the broader economy, that things can deteriorate to a point of no return if we don't adopt a very different structural reformist approach to say that what is what has been the path adopted before in terms of um, a command approach to the economy, that has not worked. We've got evidence of that. You just have to look at uh, all the areas I've mentioned earlier on, um, um, local government failures, that hasn't worked. So without that, here's how we see um, the current, I've told you, I've already mentioned the fact that over the last 15 years, the sector has contracted at a compound rate of 1.2%. That is a contraction rate. For the year 2023, um, because this sector is a barometer of what is happening in the underlying heartbeat of the economy, we supply product into construction, the mining sector, the automotive sector, the agricultural sector, um, the direct government projects as well. And all of those sectors, particularly the private sector ones, have all indicated significant headwinds. And in fact, production declines um, in their respective economies, largely as a function of the deterioration of the country and the energy crisis that is at the center of that. So we see that as quite a, 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 a major binding constraint for this economy, which trickles down to all the sector. In fact, the number we have currently penned is a 2.2% decline. Uh, that's contraction for the year 2023. And that's really a base case scenario 
with considerable downside risks. We've thrown into there as many punitive assumptions as we can at this point, uh, which makes us arrive at that point of 2.2% contraction. But really, there is considerable downside risks given the extent at which things have deteriorated in the country. And then I want to go back to my final point that I said, that I began with rather, where I just said that in the, in the absence of intervention, and I'm talking major reform in the form of economic uh, intervention, um, we are basically on a free fall and the economy is on a hiding to none. It's all good and well in theory. Ultimately, every 1.2% represents X amount of jobs which represents, represents X amount of citizens, people, families that are going to suffer hardship because of that. But because of people like yourselves and your organization being there, working together tirelessly, keeping things together, and ultimately giving the voiceless a voice and a platform to discuss and negotiate, you're really ensuring that the economy keeps going forward. So, again, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you. I would really, I'm going to be in touch with you if you don't mind afterwards, um, because I think there's something that we can add over here. But thank you to, to you and please just thank everybody in your organization, because it's not just an organization that gives information out. Every time there is a willing, whether it's at a negotiating table for both parties, whether it's keeping an industry going, whether it's cutting through red tape, ultimately there's food on the table in different families. So that's really what counts. Thank you so much, and thank you for being with us. Craig, thank you for pushing the buttons. Thank you for listening. We'll chat to you next week.